Hello, and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today, we're jumping in to the life of Alexander the Great. I myself am a little nervous to take on this life, but I think if we just tackle it with energy and gusto and use Plutarch as our leader, we should be fine. So let's dive right in. I'm going to tackle Alexander the way Plutarch does. That is to say, I'm not going to be focused on military history, on military strategy, and this is not a military history podcast, though I will link to some of those in the show notes. This is not a political podcast or a social history podcast. It is a biography, and so we want to get to know the man, and it is actually in this life that Plutarch explains to us that he is writing biography and not history. He tells us in this life, I'm writing lives, not histories. Histories would be an inquiry into the causes and effects of everything. Lives, as Plutarch uses it, is exactly what you think. Bios, where we get words like biology. He's writing about the beginning, middle, and end. Sure, there are causes and effects, but more important than that, there are choices. Choices, decisions, consequences. And those are the things we live with every day in our own lives. Here's Plutarch in his own words. It is not histories that I am writing, but lives. And in the most illustrious deeds, there is not always a manifestation of virtue or vice. Even a slight thing, like a phrase or a jest, often makes a greater revelation of character than battles where thousands fall, or the greatest armaments, or sieges of cities. So I'll be up to what Plutarch's up to. But I'm not just digesting the information and regurgitating it like a bird, like a mama bird for a baby bird. In fact, I'm trying to give you enough context that when you read Plutarch yourself, you get more out of the life. So just as painters, Plutarch continues, get the likenesses in their portraits from the face and the expression of the eyes, but make very little account of the rest of the body. So I must be permitted to devote myself rather to the signs of the soul in men. And in one particular man, in this case, Alexander, whose parallel will be Caesar. So he's looking at the conquerors, but not what made them conquerors, but what made their human excellences excellent. Remember, there's really three translations that you're going to see in English of the single Greek word arete, virtue. Some translators will assiduously avoid the word virtue, but some will use it. So you have virtue, but you also have valor and depending on whether your translator is British or not, it'll be O-R or O-U-R. And the third one that they use is excellence. Virtue, valor, and excellence. I've really not seen Arete translated any other way in the many translations of the lives that I have been reading and coming across in the research for these episodes. So let's check out the signs of this man's soul. But just like a painter or an artist, we have to work from the outside in. We are looking at Alexander first through the context of his family, and then his physical makeup, and then his actions when he comes of age and can choose for himself. But before that, we're just looking at Alexander's outside to understand his inside. And we know that that's how most people present themselves to us in life. So where do we begin? Well, we begin, of course, with his parents. Philip of Macedon was an unexpected king of Macedon who turned out to be really successful. Check out the life of Pelopidas when you realize that Philip had been sent to Thebes and lived with a Theban general right at the height of Theban supremacy. And not only, not only did he learn from those men, Epamenes, Epaminondas, and Pelopidas, that he learned from and had to observe close hand, close at hand. But he built on it, and he made the Greek phalanx into a much more powerful fighting machine that really became the glue that finally held Macedonia together. And not just held Macedonia together, but allowed Macedonia to expand conquering its neighbors, and uniting in 
as a force to be reckoned with even as far south as we see in this life in Athens. The Greeks get conquered by the Macedonians first by Philip and then reconquered by Alexander as we'll see. So that's Philip. Philip at a young age marries his first wife. Yeah, sorry. It is just his first wife who is Olympias. She's a Greek from Epirus, from you know the Western Greeks, closer to where Odysseus's island is. And their lineage, both Philip's and Olympias's, eventually trace back to very important heroes. Heracles, on his father's side, Heracles came up from the north, according to the myths, and Neoptolemus, or the son of Achilles, on his mother's side. So he has not one, but two extremely important Greek heroes whose blood flow in his veins. And I just think that's cool. There's all kinds of parenthood issues, right? Philip dies relatively young. He's assassinated. And that puts a burden of responsibility on Alexander, fully on Alexander's shoulders by the time Alexander is 20. 20 years old, and he comes into the full inheritance of the kingdom. But Olympias lives on after Alexander. And her power behind the throne and the people that she vies with is also very important to Alexander's life. They actually could each have biographies of their own, I'm sure. Although the sources only ever focus on them as the parents of Alexander. So, can be difficult. But there's more to Alexander's household than just his parents. Um, and we'll get there in one second. When Alexander is born to his parents, he's the firstborn. Philip receives three pieces of good news at the same time. First, yes, his wife, Olympias, has given birth to a son. His firstborn son has come into the world. But two other pieces of news come right on the heels of this news. <laughs> good news comes in threes, right? One of his generals had conquered the Illyrians, so there's another barbarian tribe subdued and added to the Macedonian Empire. And one of his horses had just won at the Olympics. So the year is 356, and Alexander enters the world. Supposedly, Philip already knows that this is important. The gods already know this is important. The temple of Artemis burned down. That omen can probably be understood either way, but one wise guy cracks the joke that it burned down because Artemis was busy bringing Alexander into the world. Didn't have time to defend her temple. But where is everyone else from this season? Well, Demosthenes is about to enter and give his first speech in public trying to win his inheritance back. He does that the year after Alexander is born. Dion, almost at this very moment, has taken over Syracuse. And Timoleon is 10 years away from entering Syracuse himself, still living in exile, already having killed his tyrannical brother in Corinth. So that's where we are on the map with our other Greeks. Agesilaus has been dead for 10 years. Pelopidas has been dead for about 10 years. So... Alexander comes on the scene, July 6th, according to Plutarch. I think scholars dispute that now, and I think he's placed later in July, more like July 21st. 356, with three pieces of good news, with all kinds of portents and omens. It's not just the burning of the Temple of Ephesus, but I think that's one of the most important ones. And then we get a description of his physical attributes, focused, again, on painters and sculptors, who could sculpt him the best? The answer is Lysippus, according to Plutarch. Who could paint him the best? The answer is Apelles. I'll put in the show notes some of the remaining sculptures and paintings we have of Alexander, almost all of which are Roman copies. The Romans loved Alexander the Great, and they loved copying his statues and paintings um, from any Greek copies they could get. One of the most famous mosaics is actually from a floor in Pompeii, which is from uh, one of the battles where he fights Darius. It's now in the um, 
Archaeological Museum in Naples. I'll put that in the show notes. So you can see, though, when you look at Alexander, especially when you look at him through the artists who actually represented him well, that he had a warm and fiery body by nature. What does that mean? That he ran hot? He was slightly hotter than 98.7 degrees at any given time? No, I think it's more of his temperament and approach. Everything he came to, he came to it and lit it on fire, and it continued to burn after he touched it. And so that fire, and from the fire of the temple of uh, Diana in Ephesus, of Artemis in Ephesus, we've got fire as a theme that's already developing here. And that fire leads him to another fire in the belly, his love of drink. Even when a young man, his love of drink can make his fire grow uncontrollable. He, be- he can become impetuous, violent, and unpredictable. But one thing this fire does have control over is his control of the pleasures of the body. And that's another theme. Fire has been introduced, but fire cuts two ways. Fire can destroy and burn and scar for life, but properly controlled, fire doesn't just allow us to sacrifice to the gods, Plutarch would say, or warm our homes, but it's the basis of almost every major technology that comes later. So, Alexander's like that. Is he going to bring a fire that scars and destroys to the Persian Empire? Or is he going to bring a fire that elevates and further civilizes these people? And Plutarch's answer might be a little bit of both. As we expand the circle of his household, we see that Alexander looks around him at his father and he's actually saddened by his father's victories because he wants his father to leave great works for Alexander himself to do. He wants to inherit a kingdom that will allow him to use struggle and war for his own ambition. He does not want to be the fat cat son of a conquering king who allows him to live in luxury and pleasure. So as we expand, we see that he gets he starts to get exposed to teachers who have almost as big an influence on him as his own father. Two important Greek ones are Leonidas, who's a stern relative of his mother, and who helps with that, what the Greeks would call trophy or physical upbringing. Makes him tough. Makes him willing to physically endure cold water or hunger or long marches or heavy weights and say, that makes you stronger, son. So that's Leonidas, and we'll see his advice woven throughout. And then there's also Lysimachus, who's compared to Phoenix. Phoenix from book nine of the Iliad. Phoenix is never introduced before book nine. We get no backstory. But then when Phoenix tries to convince Achilles to come back, he tells him the story of like, I was there all the way from when you were a baby. I helped raise you. And so this Lysimachus character is like Phoenix. He's a foster father character whom Alexander will always hold in high regard. And he will teach him all of the basic skills. Hunting, shooting with the bow, riding on the horse, etc. And actually, I think it's at this moment that Plutarch decides to tell us the story of the taming of Bucephalus. Because Bucephalus is part of Alexander's household. Like this horse is a very important character. It's a character that when he dies, which we'll get to in the next episode, he founds a city and names it after his horse. I think that's got to be one of a very small number of cities named after a beloved animal. But when we first meet Bucephalus, whose name means horse head, so he either had an obnoxiously or oddly large head, like an ox. I think an ox's head is fatter, whiter, more bulbous, bigger eyes than a horse. Or his body fit his head, and he had a big old head, but he also had a big old body. So maybe he's a stronger, tougher, bigger horse bred for war. Anyway, the price set on this horse is 13 talents. Ridiculously high price. That's higher than many cities were paying Athens in tribute, an entire city's tax revenue. And they want to pay higher than that, to put it in context. So why is Bucephalus worth such a high price? Philip dismisses him pretty quickly, seeing that he's still wild, 
No one can mount him. No one can calm him down even. And he just demands that the horse be taken away. But Alexander turns to his father and says, Hey, Dad, can I give it a try? Philip is kind of annoyed. And when Alexander bets the price of the horse that he can tame it, his annoyance bubbles over and he says, Fine, manage it better than all these men who've ridden horses far longer than you have. Show us how good you are. And Alexander realizes, and Alexander realizes that Bucephalus is afraid of his own shadow. And so he turns him around towards the sun, and he's eventually able to calm him down. He even mounts him, and by the time he really knows he's won the bet, he's turning around and galloping full speed back at Philip and all of his friends. As he arrives back in front of Philip, Philip is crying tears of joy and says to his son, you have to seek a kingdom for yourself because there isn't enough room for you in Macedon. The importance of this story is not whether or not it physically happened. It's very much like the cherry tree episode in George Washington's life. What it shows us about who George Washington is is far more important than whether or not the cherry tree actually got chopped down. George Washington is an honest man. Alexander the Great is one who tames the wildness. The question is, is he able to tame the wildness in himself as well as he's able to tame Bucephalus? Because Bucephalus becomes an analog for Alexander himself. And what will be the fruits of taming and getting self-control for this wildness? That is one of the themes we will see. And speaking of taming the wildness, it's about this time that Philip decides that this young man, 343, about 13 or 14 years old, needs a tutor. And he wants the best in all of Greece. And so he finds him. It just so happens that there's this guy alive at the time whose name is Aristotle. Yep, that Aristotle. So just as Dion had learned at the feet of Plato and tried to apply those teachings in Syracuse, now we're going to see Alexander taught at the feet of Aristotle for several years, a one-on-one tutorial relationship where they wrote letters to each other afterwards. And Aristotle taught Alexander ethics and politics. We should remember that both of those terms trace back to books that Aristotle wrote. Can you imagine being taught ethics by the guy who wrote the book on it? (laughs) Being taught politics by the guy who wrote the book on it. Now, obviously, some of that is also owed to Plato in great works like The Republic and The Gorgias and The Symposium, but we have a direct line of ascent where Socrates has an influence on Alexander the Great. And the men only lived. I mean, Socrates died in 399 and Alexander the Great was born in 356. That's less than half a century. And yet you have this amazing Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, Aristotle taught Alexander. And according to Plutarch, he didn't just teach him ethics and politics, which I think would be very important considering Alexander's position and prospects. But he also taught him a bunch of teachings he never fully committed to writing. And so we have Alexander is presented to us as a lover of learning. Aristotle's father had been a doctor. He also taught him medicine, cultivated a love of medicine in Alexander that will last his entire life. It's one of the reasons Alexander will go to the tents of his men when they are wounded. Now, this is very Homeric as well. As you recall, Patroclus, who's actually just a better man than Achilles, pretty much all around, but not as good a warrior, feels bad for the Greeks and for most of the middle of the epic is going to seek out information about who has been wounded and how he can help. And so he finds Machaon and Nestor and he finds Eurypolis or Eurypolis finds him in the middle of the book. And that's what gets Patroclus so mad that he goes back and yells at Achilles let me wear your armor. And Achilles gives in and Patroclus goes out to his death. Right. I do want to take a brief pause right here in the show to let you know that season four of the Plutarch podcast is brought to you by the support of Hackett Publishing. This small independent publisher has been serving the humanities 
since 1972. With affordable translations in everything from Homer to Dante, they've generously offered listeners of this podcast 20% off any title in their catalog and free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. With the coupon code Plutarch, you could add Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Iliad or the Odyssey to your library. You could get the complete works of Plato in a beautiful hardcover, or you could enjoy Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or Antony and Cleopatra. For the last two years, I've used Jan Blitz's notes on Julius Caesar to prepare my own students for the Roman context and background on Shakespeare's masterpiece. Really, that play is worth getting just for the introductory matter and the notes. Just go to hacketpublishing.com today and enter the coupon code Plutarch for 20% off and free shipping. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. But for now, we'll go back to the show. But Alexander wanted to continue to model that. His heroes from the Iliad are literal heroes for Alexander, and he wants to be just like them. So, as we round out Alexander's boyhood here, we need to look at his ambition is already bigger than his boyishness, right? Philip goes to conquer or goes to to run a military expedition far away and leaves Alexander on the throne at 16 as a regent. Not only does Alexander put down a rebellious tribe that revolts against Macedon, but he founds his first city that he names after himself. He's getting this from his father. His father had already founded Philippi, which plays an important role in a lot of places as well. Not only that, he's present at Chironea. So the battle in which the Greeks lose their freedom to the Macedonians is in August of 338. Alexander is 18, and he leads the charge. And according to Plutarch, he leads the charge and breaks the ranks of the illustrious sacred band that Pelopidas and Epaminondas had worked so hard to make such an elite cavalry unit, I mean infantry unit, to make such an elite infantry unit, it's Alexander that breaks them up. And so we see that's what Alexander's home life looks like. Now, before we start thinking that it's really peaceful, we should remember that Olympias is very ambitious as well. Alexander doesn't get a single dose of ambition from his father, or maybe a larger than human dose of ambition from his father. He gets a healthy dose of ambition also from his mother. It runs on both sides. There's a reason there's Heracles and Achilles back there on both sides. So this annoyance, you can imagine, Philip continues a Macedonian tradition of adding a number of wives. And this is impractical on a lot of levels. It's hard to keep track of children and who is actually the heir and what is the ranking of the wives, right? But he's also not noticing that Olympias finds this really irksome. So Philip, at one point, is adding his fifth wife, who's now significantly younger than him. And Alexander is even annoyed, forcing to toast this girl at a party. And Philip, who's now uh, one cup or two too many in, gets offended that Alexander is annoyed on behalf of his mother. And he tries to stand up and unsheath his sword, but as he's doing so, he trips because he'd already had one too many. And Alexander's able to to make a joke of it. But that's an omen, right? The way Philip acts in his... deep in his cups is going to be a... should act as a warning for Alexander as to what he's going to be tempted to do in his own cups. We'll see that more in episode two. But Philip is able to calm down when he, when a Greek reminds him, who's present, dissension is good for Greece, not for your household. Right? Chaos in the household is a bad thing. Just see how much suffering it caused Pericles, for example. That's just one. Right? So, but, and that's really Alexander and Olympias' relationship with Philip cools at this point, cools after this like fifth marriage And they go into self-imposed exile. And it seems like while they're in that self-imposed exile, Philip is assassinated. Because of the cooling of that relationship, Olympias and Alexander are, of course, under suspicion. But Plutarch points out that Alexander does punish those who were explicitly involved in the plot. Uh, it's, It's a hard plot to hide because Philip is killed in public. He's at a banquet and someone runs up and stabs him. 
So at least that guy was easy, was able to be caught and probably anybody else who ran away. So the, the very public nature of Philip's death means that Alexander is thrust at 20 years old onto the throne of Macedon and we enter the second part of this life, which is now that the ambition is in charge, now that he's at the top of the pyramid, what's he going to do? Is he going to keep Philip's Macedonian empire? Is he going to, the Greeks have already revolted. What's he going to do? Athens and Thebes have revolted. Demosthenes, remember, right? When Alexander was born, Demosthenes was giving his first speech, but now we're 20 years later. So Demosthenes is at the top of his political game and has plenty of opinions to say after sharing all of his opinions about Philip, he's got plenty about Alexander as well and wants Alexander out. But it's Demosthenes is who Alexander comes for. And he says, huh, hearing that Demosthenes thought he was a little boy, he's like, well, I guess Demosthenes will watch me grow up as I march down to Athens. He'll watch me be a boy among the Illyrians, right? A young man in Thessaly. And I guess I'll have to show him that I'm a man by the time I get to Athens. And with both of those references, right, he's showing and giving places that he has already conquered under his father. And now he's going to conquer them again as a man. So as he arrives before Thebes, he makes them an offer to surrender. And they counter offer and they want to fight for their freedom. Um, but they're greatly outnumbered and the Thebans are utterly destroyed. This isn't even like the Battle of Chironea where maybe a good fight was put up. It's just destruction. And so Alexander now needs to make an example of Thebes is one way that Plutarch describes it. He sends away the priests, the guest friends of the Macedonians, and all those who descended from the poet Pindar. He even spares those who had voted not to revolt, but he sells 30,000 Thebans into slavery after he had killed 6,000 of them on the battlefield. That's a setback for Greece. Greece sees this as tyrannical behavior, not the behavior of a king. And so how can he make it up to the Greeks? How can he conquer the Greeks and then claim to be their liberator? Conquer the Greeks, but claim to be their defender. It's hard. But he starts that project by sparing Athens. And he does later regret his treatment of Thebes. And another key theme that I'm going to pull through this life like a thread is this Dionysian disapproval. So the god Dionysus, who, by the way, is the god of wine. Ooh, there's that wine, right? The wine that Alexander loves. Is also the god of drama and a god who was born near Thebes. Dionysus was added later to the Pantheon. You may notice if you've read the epics, Dionysus is not mentioned as a god in the Iliad and the Odyssey. I believe Zeus mentions his mother, but... Uh, and maybe Dionysus himself, but not as dwelling on Mount Olympus. And so he's really added later to the Pantheon, sort of like Heracles is, where Heracles is born of a mortal woman and then rises to the level. But Dionysus gets a little higher. Dionysus is like Asclepius, the god of healing. And he ends up being worshipped just fully as a god, even though he kind of has like human and divine origins. Zeus is his father, obviously. But it'll be important to keep track of those three analogs. Dionysus is the god of wine, the god of drama, and the god of Thebes. And those three are going to be large parts of Alexander's mistakes and downfalls. So he's spared Athens. But now we have the rest of the Greek people to deal with. And like Philip, he's just going to ignore Sparta. He doesn't care. They're not powerful enough to matter anymore. And the lives of Pelopidas and the lost life of Epaminondas made that clear to us. Sparta is a has-been. They're a polis that doesn't matter outside of their own little valley of Laconia. And that's really how the Macedonians are going to treat them all the way until halfway through Alexander's march out to Persia when finally the regent that Alexander leaves in charge, Antipater, takes care of the Spartan problem permanently. And he does. He defeats them. But anyway, looking at the other Greek cities, we have Corinth, we have Delphi. He goes to Corinth Because remember, Philip had set a league of Corinth. He had made Corinth the capital. The Romans are going to continue that, right? They're going to keep Corinth the capital of their province of Achaia. So the Macedonians want to rule Greece, not from Athens, not from the cultural and political capital, 
not from Sparta, but from Corinth. Because Corinth cares about one thing, money. They have two ports. They're an extremely wealthy polis. And they have the the freedom and the laissez-faire to just say, if we can make the money and you stay out of our way, we're happy, happy people. So he goes to Corinth to announce that he's going to lead the Greeks against Persia. Here's the I'm sorry, we're actually united and I am actually your liberator move. As everyone gathers there to congratulate him, Alexander notices that a philosopher is missing. So he was trained by the philosopher Aristotle. He's still taking that education into his next move. But he notices that that Diogenes the cynic isn't there. What's a cynic? A cynic, we say nowadays, going from the Oscar Wilde quote, you can say a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. But we mean a cynic is a negative person in general. They tend to have a negative or jaundiced view of the world and they draw conclusions that are pessimistic about human nature. That's not what the original cynics were. The original cynics were definitely critics. They were critics of society. And they looked to Socrates as the ultimate first cynic because he didn't live according to social norms. While he may have obeyed the laws of Athens and died in obedience to the laws of Athens, he didn't care about other people's opinions of him. He wanted to live in accord with nature and discover what nature wanted him to do. This leads the cynics to get their nickname from outsiders who think that they live like dogs. Right? If the goal is never to do anything that society would possibly pressure you to do, then you would live like dogs do. And some of the conclusions that the cynics come to make it hard not to agree with the the critics of the cynics. So Diogenes is famous for living in a barrel. How do you why do you need a house, man? How much land does a man need? It's that question that he's willing to answer with that extreme of poverty of only own what I absolutely need. They also go to the bathroom in public because it's society that makes you think you need privacy for that, right? So in some ways they sound like early hippies, but Alexander wants to meet this Diogenes. Diogenes is famous, well, fair. I mean, not everybody lives in a barrel, right? And defecates in public. So he goes to find him when Diogenes has not gone out of his way to come to Alexander. And standing before him, he says, Diogenes, what could I possibly give you? What do you want from me? I'm Alexander, implying I'm already great. And Diogenes says, yes, you can give me something. Step out of my son. Alexander is actually impressed by this response. Get out of the way. Stop (laughs) casting your shadow over me. And says that if he weren't Alexander, he would be Diogenes. Whereas if he didn't have a completely boundless ambition to conquer and control, then he would have a mastery and a self-control that would say, I can be content in a barrel. I can live on the least amount of food that I need. So from there, he goes to Delphi. And we see that he's not Diogenes at all. He summons the prophetess. Okay, In in the oracle at Delphi, you can receive an oracle, usually according to the moon, so about once a month. So a lot of people will make the journey to Delphi, and then there's a lot of waiting around. He is unwilling to wait. He summons the prophetess, who explains to him that I can only give prophecies at certain times of the month, and the moon and the stars are not allowing for it right now. He rejects that and he grabs her by the hair and he starts dragging her to the temple where she will give him a prophecy. He's basically going to force a prophecy out of her. As he is dragging her, she screams, you are invincible, my son. And he drops her hair, lets her go, and leaves Delphi. He received the oracle he needed. And so now we're in stage three, right? Stage one was his youth. Stage two was his preparation, so his reconquest of Greece and his preparation for attacking Persia, and now we attack Persia. In the pencil sketch version, there's four main battles that you need to keep track of. One battle is right after he comes into Asia Minor. It's called Granicus River. 
The second battle is right as he turns the corner from Asia to Syria, Asia Minor to Syria, so around the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. That's called the Battle of Issus. Then he doesn't do much fighting in as he works his way down the coast. He's got a couple sieges, Siege of Tyre, Siege of Memphis in Egypt, but he conquers those with less work. They're not, not saying he doesn't risk his life. He does, but... And then he has the last showdown against Darius, which is at Galgamela. That's back northeastern Iraq, near the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Then he's going to be able to march down those rivers and get access to the wealthiest cities of the Persian Empire. Babylon, Susa, Persepolis, Ecbatana. And really, he the rest of his campaigns are smaller campaigns either to get individual satraps to listen to him, like Bessus, one that we'll see in episode two, or to expand beyond the boundaries of the Persian Empire when he goes into the Hidaspes River, beyond the Indus River, into the uh, onto one of its tributaries, and he conquers that man. Then he builds ships and conquers the entire Indus River going all the way down to the ocean. So that really becomes his natural border there on the end. So those are the four places. There's great maps. I'll put some maps in the show notes. And they're kind of big toothpicks to put in the map as you try to trace where he is at each of these times. Because there will be just a few paragraphs in between each of these battles in Plutarch, but many years go by in this time. So when does he start his invasion? Really 334 is what most people consider to, he crosses over into Asia and he does not immediately go to battle against the satraps. He actually is almost like a tourist at first and goes to visit Troy. He sacrifices to Athena there. He pours out libations to the heroes. He races his friends around Achilles' tomb, which where Patroclus is also buried, right? The two best friends. It's probably, he hasn't been mentioned yet, but his best friend is like a Patroclus character, Hephaestion. He's going to be a very important character in Alexander's life. They're even going to arrange to marry sisters when they marry in the Persian Empire so that their children can be cousins. It's kind of cute. So when he was told that he can see the lyre, right, the harped, the harp stringed instrument of Paris, he rejects that and says he'd rather see the lyre of Achilles. That's what Achilles is playing on. He's playing on the lyre, singing the glorious deeds of great men when the embassy to Achilles comes to him in book nine. And he got that lyre from sacking the city of Hector's wife's family. Hector's wife's family's liar is in Achilles' arms as the embassy walks in to greet him. Anyway, that's a cool Iliad moment that I will leave. So in the Granicus River, the first major battle, we have to ask the question. I'm not going to talk much about the strategy, like I said. But there's a question that each battle raises, and it shows us something about the soul of Alexander. And the question we're all left with is, is Alexander reckless or bold? Reckless would be an excess. Bold is a mean between the extremes. But are we just judging him by how it worked out? Because in the Granicus River, his most experienced general, Parmenio, who's in charge of his, ca- of his main body of cavalry, right? not the companion cavalry, which is a smaller unit that just follows Alexander, But the main huge body of cavalry is led by Parmenio, who served for decades under Philip before serving under Alexander, points out that a steep river that's deep is a huge disadvantage and that they've arrived at the end of the day and that they should wait it out and try to pick more advantageous terrain. Furthermore, it's an ill-omened month for battle as it seems too early in the winter season. It's not really the warring and the sailing season. Alexander's response is to plunge in first and personally lead the attack across the river, basically willing himself up a muddy bank with all of his strength. Now, he's 
20-something, right? He's at the prime of his physical strength, but this seems foolish, even to Plutarch. Fighting up this muddy slope in no particular formation. And he has further risks that come to him. But he's standing out as a target now. Everyone has seen him lead the way across. He has a special helmet that marks him out as the leader, which will help men follow him, sure, but it also helps men target him. And two Persian noblemen bear down on him and are kind of double-teaming him, where he's able to shatter the spear of one, but he hasn't killed that man yet, and another comes down with an axe on his head. It shatter The axe is not shattered, but neither is the helmet, but it's going to take one more blow, and that's all it's going to take. So the guy pulls the axe back for a second swing, and just as he does that, one of Alexander's companions named Cletus, nicknamed the Black probably for his hair color, runs the man through with a spear before the axe falls the second time. And in that same moment, Alexander finishes the first man off with a sword. But you're already here, right? You haven't even come close to conquering the Persian Empire, and you're risking your life so intensely that you almost die in the first battle. The infantry engage, the Persians don't hold up very long, and the Greek mercenaries are the ones that Alexander is most intent on punishing. But he sends back almost all of the spoils to Athens. He sends 300 shields, saying that this is where we're beginning our revenge for the Persian invasion of Greece 150 years earlier. Then he marches down the coast. Sardis, the most the wealthiest city at the end of the royal road, they capitulate, hand him the keys to the city. Some other cities resist, Halicarnassus and Miletus, they have to be taken by storm. Um, and he works his way through Asia Minor. The next important place that he gets to is the other famous anecdote for Alexander. He gets to the town of Gordium, the legendary home of Midas. We should remember that Asia Minor was the first area in the world, about three centuries before this, to start minting gold and silver coins. And so there's a reason that Midas is associated with the golden touch and is from this area where the first gold and silver coins were minted. But he's not there for the coins, or not just there for the coins. There's a puzzle in Gordium where the original chariot that Midas had ridden into town had this complex knot that joined the uh, chariot to the yoke of horses. And no one could untie it. And Plutarch tells us that he did it in one of two ways. He either, and this is probably the famous one you remember, sliced it in half with a sword, or he removed the pin that joined the knot to the yoke, and the knot fell apart on its own. It was a knot probably like a monkey fist, where you couldn't find the working end. The working end had been tucked into the knot somewhere. And so, kind of a cool story, and again depending on what you believe about Alexander's nature or character, you'll go with one side or the other of that story. Darius, though, has realized that Alexander is a real threat. A real threat who has to be dealt with in person. And so Darius is encouraged by a dream where he sees the Macedonian phalanx on fire. Oh, there's that fire again. And Alexander is dressed as a royal messenger telling him about this coming problem. And I'll just let you read Plutarch's interpretation of that dream is a little different than Darius's, but it's obviously a lot easier to interpret a dream when you know how things go. So now that Alexander has all of Asia Minor under his belt, he's going to turn right and head down what we call the Levant or modern Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. To do that, He has to get through a narrow passage of mountains, and that's exactly why the Battle of Issus will be very important. Darius is afraid that if he doesn't get there soon enough, he's afraid that Alexander's going to run away, or if they end up on the wrong sort of terrain, Alexander's going to be able to run away. And that is just a grave irony because of what happens later. But Alexander manages to pass Darius with their armies pass each other without being aware of each other's presence. And so they have to turn around, but this gives Alexander, if he can hurry, a a way of getting onto good terrain that's helpful for him because he's coming up against a huge army and if he can keep it in a narrow pass that they're fighting, 
he can control how much of the enemy that he's taking on at any one time. And he succeeds wildly to the point that Darius has to flee, abandoning his camp even. right? Doesn't just flee back to camp and regroup and figure it out. Just runs as far as he possibly can. And so by the time Alexander pursues but can't catch up with him, and by the time he gets back to camp, his men are already sacking the camp and they left the tent of Darius for Alexander to explore. And he walks into the tent and says, this, it seems, is what it means to be a king. It seems is important there because that's a very philosophical it seems. How much is Alexander going to be changed by his own conquest? How much will Alexander give in and think that being a king is being wealthy and powerful? What does that power entail? Who does he have in his power right now, actually? Turning back to this battle at hand, after the Battle of Issus, where Darius runs away, Darius has abandoned his wife, mother, and two daughters who are now captured in the camp. And this is where... Alexander shines, according to Plutarch, in showing his humanity, is how my translation wrote it. The Greek is philanthropia. You probably hear the word philanthropy there. It just is a love, a philia, of your fellow man, anthropos. That virtue has obviously been expanded now to include all men, but it's cool to see Alexander taking on the royals and continuing to treat them as royals. And one of my favorite quotes from this whole life is that Alexander does not humiliate the royal family because he knows or considers mastery of himself to be more kingly than the conquest of his enemies. Mastery of himself, the self-control, rather than glorying in the defeat of that these women are experiencing, he continues to treat them with the dignity and respect and, and keeps their lifestyle up at what they're used to. So it's at this point that Plutarch makes a first excursus reminding us like, Alexander keeps himself under control. He can surround himself with more and more beautiful women and he stays faithful. Maybe Philip was a counterexample there, right? People try to offer him gifts, women, boys, right? He puts to to death some of his own soldiers who are convicted of assault of different women. And he refuses to eat richer and richer food. Now, we don't know how long this is going to last, right? The question is, we know he's just going to get wealthier as he marches through Persia. So what is the question? his, His appetites are under control here after Issus, but for how long? And because it was in the back of your mind... As you were thinking, wait, his appetites are under control, but what about his appetite for wine? That's right, we have another excursus on wine. Plutarch explains that he lingers over his wine and so doesn't actually drink as much as he seems to drink, right? If it takes me three hours to drink a couple glasses of wine, it might seem like I was drinking a lot because I was drinking that whole time, but it was small sips. So Alexander was less alcoholic than he looked. He would also linger over wine for the sake of the conversation. But Plutarch has to admit, even right here, that wine does make him more argumentative and more prone to flattery. And those two Achilles heels, right? Not just one heel is weak and he's a descendant of Achilles. Oh man, I like that. Are are what we are going to see help cause his downfall. But he's intense like fire and everything he does is intense. He sleeps hard. He gets up in the morning, he prays and hunts and administers justice and plans strategy and reads and he does it all with the intensity of his own fiery personality. And so wine might help him unwind, so to speak. So marching down the Mediterranean coast, he conquers Tyre in a siege. Really cool story, but we don't have time for it. He then turns right and wants to conquer Egypt. So Tyre and Egypt those two periods are going to give him full control of the Eastern Mediterranean. He has the allegiance of the King of Cyprus, that very strategic island in the Eastern Mediterranean. And in the siege of Tyre, he takes care of the Persian Navy. There is no Persian Navy by the time Alexander is going deep into the heartland of Persia. But before we do that, 
he has to found a city and name it after himself. And his first city he named Alexandropolis, which just didn't have a ring to it. I don't think they had as good a marketing department. So the city that really takes off is Alexandria. And why? Why does Alexandria really take off? Well, of course, because Homer's a genius. So how does this all start? Well, at one point, he gets one of Darius's most costly treasure boxes. Just think of a nice big box that has the treasure on the outside as well as the inside. It's encrusted with jewels and golden leaf and all these shiny things that go kishwow when you hold them in the light. And Alexander has to decide, this is an empty box, right? I was given a really nice box that has the treasure on the outside, but what treasure am I going to put inside? And Alexander decides, I'm going to put all of my 24 scrolls of the Iliad, the ones that Aristotle gave to me and annotated for me. Oh, right, that Aristotle that wrote a whole book called The Poetics, which analyzes all of the important literature that the Greeks had written up to his own day, including the epics and the dramas, and calls the Iliad a tragedy. Right, I'm going to put that book in here. And so Homer is accompanying Alexander on this journey. And so when founding Alexandria, he has this dream that an old man quotes the Odyssey to him. And he quotes book four, where Menelaus is talking about how, in Menelaus' journey home from Troy, he ended up at an island off the coast of Egypt. That island was called Pharos. On that island, and in their stay there, right, Menelaus has to wrestle with Proteus and figure out how to get the information he needs to get home. Helen learns all these like medicinal, herbal, supplemental things and brings those back, puts everybody into a nice, comfortable sleep at the end of book four. But the important thing is exactly that location, Pharos. And Alexander, as an Iliad tourist, Iliad-influenced tourist, goes to see that island. And he sees, wow, this is a great site for a future city. It's at the mouth of the Nile, on the westernmost bank, or one of its westernmost mouths. It has a beautiful harbor. It has an island that's going to eventually allow us to build a famous lighthouse, though Alexander is not the one that lays the groundwork for that. But I can set up a city that will really flourish here and it will become a trading center. Remember, he's already familiar with Corinth. And this is going to be cool. So he sets the outline of the city himself. We have stories, right, from the life of Romulus that Romulus plows the actual circumference of the walls Alexander uses barley. He would normally use chalk, but he uses barley. And the birds come and eat it all. And you're like, oh no, that's a horrible omen. The gods are against this city. But of course, there's always two ways to read an omen, or almost always. And the way his omen readers read this omen is, no, 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 no. This will be a city that will feed many. And now he's got one last stop in Egypt before we turn to Galgamela and end this episode outside of Babylon. He needs to get to an oracle that's at an oasis. This is a dangerous journey because you have to travel through the desert to get to the oracle and you have and you have to not get lost so that you find the oracle and don't die in the desert. But Plutarch makes the point that fortune, remember, oh fickle fortune, that fortune that had worked so well for Timoleon and so poorly for Dion, is working well with Alexander. Fortune has to work with and not against Alexander because his ambition is so boundless, Plutarch says. He conquers not just people, but time and space. Why? How do we know this? Well, Plutarch brings this up because on his march out to the Oracle, they're accompanied by rain the entire time. They're like, come on, rain in the desert on a regular basis? Doesn't happen. And then they do get a little lost right? Because all the sand dunes look the same and a sandstorm can come up and rechange, reshape all the sand dunes. So you're like, oh, I don't know, gotta just travel by the sun, right? But you don't, not when you're Alexander, because two ravens will come. And just being birds, they probably can see or sense where the water is and they fly straight for the oasis where this oracle is located. So they get there and the priests are ready to greet him. And Alexander has only two questions that he needs to ask, although he claims in a letter that he asked other secret questions. But the two questions that are asked publicly are, have I caught all of Philip's murderers? 
Notice that he called him Philip. He did not ask the question as, have I caught all my father's murderers? Because in some ways, he's wrestling with, is his father Zeus? Not like is his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Zeus. Is his father Zeus? Good question. Though that would make Alexander semi-divine, which he might be starting to believe himself. And his second question, am I destined to be Lord and Master of all mankind? The priests answer affirmative to both. But in trying to greet him, they really make their most revelatory statement. In greeting Alexander, they want to greet him in Greek. Obviously, they're Egyptian, so Greek is not not their strong suit. So they're going to say, all right, he's a young man, right? He's in his early 20s, and we're going to greet him as young man, as oh, young son. Well, how do you say that in Greek? Someone get a lexicon. Look that up, right? And they come back with oh, pideon, a diminutive of pice, which means child, right? It's probably a priestly way of looking down, right? You're representing the gods who are the fathers of uh, the fathers of gods and men is a title for Zeus. This is an oracle to Zeus. So that's great. Call him Opideon. Well, whatever priest is told to deliver the message changes it by just one letter, but it changes a lot of what it means. Instead of calling him Opideon, he calls him Opideos. And now we have three words where we used to have two. The O stays the same. We can leave the O alone. Just a form of greeting. But Paidion had been one word. Paidios is now two words and would be heard as child or son of Zeus. Well, an oracle said it, so it must be true. And now we want to know, is Alexander only going to play this up amongst the barbarians? That's what Plutarch claims. He says he's going to play the divinity card when he needs to. Hey, I'm the son of a god. Stay out of my way. But he'll remind his fellow Macedonians that he's not. At one point, he's wounded and bleeding. And he tells his fellow Macedonians, hey, look, blood is coming out, not ichor, the magical substance that flows through the veins of the gods. Remember when Diomedes goes on the rampage in book five, he wounds not one but two gods. He wounds Aphrodite and she bleeds ichor out of her little wrist, and he wounds Ares by stabbing him in the stomach. Sounds like a really painful wound. At any rate, in Phoenicia, we're now in 331. He's marching back up the coast to get up towards the heartland of Persian Empire. And in Phoenicia, he hosts a festival for choruses and tragic competition. People are already coming from all over the Greek-speaking world to bring this very Greek tradition to a part of the Persian Empire that has never been Greek before. The world is already Hellenizing. The only other factor I have here is, remember we were keeping track of Dionysus, and Dionysus is the god to whom the Athenian festival is dedicated when they do the tragedies and the comedies. So one famous actor skips out on the Dionysiac festival, is fined, and Alexander pays the fine himself. But you gotta wonder. You sacked Thebes. You have a rough relationship with wine. Is Dionysus not more offended that you paid for an actor to skip his festival? That's the question. At this point, Darius now wants to negotiate. And he says, you can have everything west of the Euphrates, which really is what Alexander had already conquered at this point. But you can have 10,000 talents to get the captives back. Remember, he's ransoming his own family. And you can have one of my daughters in marriage. So, in other words, an official alliance and your son can sit on the throne. Parmenio, again, always the advice giver and the, the talented general at his side, says, if I were Alexander, I would accept. Alexander agrees. Says, yeah, so would I if I were Parmenio. Ouch. But Alexander's actual reply to Darius is a little a little prideful. He says, look, we can negotiate in person or on the battlefield, which would also be in person, but at least for Alexander. So, but then shortly after sending this rather prideful message, Darius' wife, who was pregnant when he had captured her at the Battle of Issus, dies in childbirth. And Alexander regretted that he hadn't been more kind. Uh, He did provide the queen of the Persians. That's what she was, after all. She was the queen of the Persians, even in captivity. 
with a royal funeral, and one of her servants escapes and is able to convince Darius that Alexander had treated all of the women of his household with the utmost respect. And once Darius finally believes this, the royal burial, keeping them up in their own lifestyle, he says, well, if, if the Persian Empire must end, then no one should sit on the throne of Cyrus but Alexander. And let's be real, like, the Persian Empire isn't ending, just the Achaemenid dynasty that Darius represents, just this direct descendants of Cyrus. But um, there's still going to be an empire, and it's actually going to be bigger for a short time than Darius's was. So then we have the preparation for Galgamela, which Plutarch tells us means camel's house. Don't know why that's important, but it's a fun fact. And as they're preparing for Galgamela, the... The armies are very close to each other. They're so close to each other, they can see each other's campfires. Darius is keeping his men under arms day and night. He does not want to be surprised. He doesn't want a night raid. Alexander lets his men sleep and sleeps hard like Alexander always does and performs secret rites and sacrifices to the god Fear. Here is where Alexander is just as well versed. This is one of the lessons of Galgamela. In the psychological aspects of warfare, as he is in the physical war aspects. Sure, he's been outnumbered. Sure, he probably is going to be outnumbered at every battle against the Persians. But it's not about numbers. It's about the will to fight. And so one of the reasons when, his, when a general suggests to him, wow, their numbers are way bigger than us. We should really attack them at night. And if we do, we'll have all the advantage. They'll throw them into confusion. They'll, they'll basically kill each other. He says, no, I can't do that. Because Darius will only admit defeat if he sees the disaster before his eyes in the daytime. He doesn't just have to lose troops and arms. He has to lose courage. And he has to lose hope. That will lead him to surrender. So before Galgamela, Alexander is sleeping deeply, as we said. And the battle begins the next morning. It's a pitched battle. The Persians seem to have the advantage, a huge wide swath of land. They've brought chariots that they've attached scythes to their wheels of. It sounds pretty cool. But Alexander immediately pushes Darius back, and Darius is already flying again. Fleeing for the second time, by the way. But Parmenio has to call him back because the, his cavalry is having a difficulty actually pushing the, um, the main force of the Persian body back. And it's at this point we get this weird like Homeric arming scene because although Alexander is already armed, we get this top-to-toe view of his armor, where it was from, how it was decorated. It's really cool, and it feels very Homeric. Plus, he's jumping on the back of Bucephalus, who Plutarch makes the point to mention, saying, like, Bucephalus is old, past his prime, right? If... Uh, Alexander had originally tamed Bucephalus sometime in his young boyhood, let's say 15, 16, 17, something like that. We're in 331 here. Alexander's 25, and Bucephalus is at least 10. But he will still ride him into battle. So Darius has escaped. He was mounted on a chariot, but he has to abandon his chariot, mount a horse, and run away. And Alexander tries to pursue, but is called back by Parmenio, they win a glorious victory, a victory really that gives them everything on the Tigris and Euphrates River, everything in modern Iraq. Alexander now assumes the title King of Asia, and he writes to the Greeks telling them that they are free from all Persian tyranny. Don't know what that means for places like Thebes that are not free from Macedonian tyranny, but hey, exchanging one tyrant for another is one of the points that Plutarch's trying to make in these lives. He also wants to connect his victories to the glories of the Greek past, right? Let's go back 150 years and remember that the last defensive stand that the Greeks made against the Persians for themselves was at the Battle of Plataea, a tiny, tiny little polis in Boeotia, outside of Thebes, or sometimes in Attica, depending on where you draw the boundaries. And uh, he promises to rebuild their city on a grand scale because they, they were the moment that the Greeks successfully started to fight back. The last moment of defense that allowed for that first moment of offense. And here it is, the crowning achievement of the moments of offense. And now, Alexander will take his time. 
He will pursue Darius eventually. Darius is not dead. Darius is not out of the picture. But Alexander now has to walk into the heart of the Persian Empire and claim it for himself. And he's going to start with that famous city of Babylon. Now, his earlier makeup was compared to fire. And here, Babylonia, the area around Babylon, has this natural lake of asphalt or naphtha that spontaneously combusts. At one point as an experiment, leave this to the Greeks, right? They're in a bathhouse. They allow someone, one of the slaves, to volunteer to put this stuff on him. And he puts this like asphalty like substance on him, lights on fire, and that he would have died. He would have burned to death in front of them if they hadn't been in a bathhouse and had copious amounts of water available. So Plutarch's really interested in this from a natural history perspective, but he's also interested in this because it teaches us more about fire. And this is often one of the ways that I will challenge my students to understand that the natural world, we have made leaps and bounds in understanding it in the last 500 years. And it often gives us a pride where we look down our noses at those in the ancient world as if they knew nothing. But they were observant. And I think we need to understand their observations for what they were with the limitations of you know, less precise math, not having Indic numerals, not having the ability to measure things as accurately. The four elements are often made fun of, right? Well, we have a periodic table and there's actually a hundred and something and we're so smart, right? But the four elements tell us a lot about the universe, especially with the states of matter. So if you have solid, liquid, gas, and energy then that really maps well onto earth, water, air, and fire. And that is what fire is. It's not a substance in and of itself, as the Greeks thought, but it laid the groundwork for us to understand that 20th century, early 20th century huge leap forward in physics, that energy can be converted into mass, and mass can be converted into energy. And so you can go from solid, liquid, and gas into energy, depending on how you combine these atomic properties, which I just think is really cool. But it also ends us with this this land of Babylon. All plants can grow there that also grow in Greece, except ivy, which is sacred to Dionysus, and it can't handle the temperature of the soil. And so we wonder, this fiery personality, this Alexander who has brought the Greek fire all the way to Babylon. How long will it last? How long will it survive? How long will Alexander's fire last? And when will that fire be destructive? And when will that fire be life-giving? When will that be the fire of civilization? And when will it be the fire that destroys? I hope you've enjoyed this introduction to Alexander and look forward to next month when we'll finish his life and look into his successors as we will for the rest of the season. In the meantime, I hope you continue to strive for a life of excellence and in so doing, find yourself opening Plutarch and letting his lives influence yours.